Hello and welcome to Making the Story, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, this evening, I'm going to be continuing our mini-series on uh, questions that I might get in the exam room about the 18th century. Uh, my exam is in maybe like 16, 17 days. And so I've been practicing by asking myself questions that I might get in the exam room and trying to answer them on this podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to be asking about uh, what we call the Ancien Regime. And my question is this. When did the British Ancien Regime end, and why should we care? I'm going to tackle the last part of that question first. Why should we care? So, when we talk about the Ancien Regime, we're basically referring to this idea that before modernity hit, there was some sort of coherent political and social whole that kept society together. The word comes from... Uh, French history in which the Ancien Regime is uh, referring to what we might call the early modern state before the French Revolution. With British history, when we talk about the Ancien Regime in the 18th century, what we really are doing is we're talking about what the 18th century is. And it goes down to a ton of identity crises about what the history of this century is actually doing. Is the 18th century just a hinge in modernity? Is it just the stuff that happens in the 19th century, but, you know, just beginning? Is the 18th century its own coherent body of society and ideas and stuff that goes somewhere between 1688 and, and 1815? Is it its own thing? Or is the 18th century instead the end of an era, the continuation of a uh, certain sort of political and social organization that then ends with the Industrial Revolution, the same way that the French uh, Ancien Regime ends with the French Revolution, although, ex though of course, without all of the, uh, you know, pomp and blood and guillotines. And we can rephrase this to think of this as a similar sort of problem as our discussion of the Industrial Revolution. What does this period of time actually matter? In some ways, my answer to this question is the most important answer of this entire uh, list because it gives my opinion about what's actually happening. What's the character of this century as a whole? We could rephrase some of the events that I am going to mention in this uh, answer to form the backbone of an actual lecture class, like not just one class, but an entire semester. So to answer this, I'm going to go through two often cited dates about when the Ancien Regime ended, and then I'm going to uh, give my own date in response. So the first date is 1688, which conveniently is the beginning of my own study of this time period. And 1688 is when the Glorious Revolution happens, when William III comes over across the sea from the Netherlands and either kicks out or occupies the vacant throne of uh, James II and starts a new regime, 
one which is a constitutional monarchy where instead of just having the king ruling and having some sort of potentially absolutist power the british monarchy becomes parliamentary the king can never after 1688 rule without parliament so the old whig story of this question of when does the ancien regime end is that you know maybe britain has never had an ancien regime uh, the idea there is that there's a particular kind of of uh, british liberty that has always been there for the taking and 1688 if, if if it is the beginning of a new era all that it does is it reinvigorates that old tradition of British liberty. It's a revolution in the old sense of the word as in turning a wheel, returning to the ancients, returning to the way that things used to be. Another way that the Whigs might answer it is that it never happened. The Ancien Regime never ended. All that we have is instead a slow development of the same kinds of political liberties. However, all Whigs, even if they might say that the Ancien Regime was always destroyed or never destroyed, would say that if it was destroyed, it was destroyed in 1688. There we have the story of evolving liberties. We might start with the uh, you know, mythic liberties of the free Englishmen before the Normans came in 1066, uh, onto the Magna Carta, which uh, started to uh, constrain the king through a bunch of parliaments, onto the civil wars, which represented uh, parliament and the people's inability to be stomped on by the king, and on to 1688 with the Bill of Rights and its enshrinement of parliament and king working together. It's a story where sometimes powers of centralization and authority, mostly French centralization and authority, sometimes have the upper hand. But after 1688, liberty wins out and keeps on winning out until the present day. There's a uh, species of this from the scholar Stephen Pincus, which says that 1688 is indeed the big break. He's a, uh, a modern Whig historian, and he says that it really does change everything. But it's not a change from ancien regime to modern regime. Instead, he argues that 1688 is actually a battle between two different ideas of what modernity should be. A Catholic modernity, which sees a, a state that's run by a king, primarily, and then a kind of Dutch commercial modernity, which sees uh, instead the state taking an active role in uh, imperialism um, and financing useful things and in developing the economy, and that is being driven by a kind of consensual parliamentary modernity. And that's the division that happens in 1688, a literal civil war between these two different sets of modernizers. And it is the parliamentary, financial, and Dutch modern modernity that wins out. The second big date that we might choose for the end of the Ancien Regime is 1832. Uh, the big proponent of this is J.C.D. Clark. For him, 1688 is a cipher. It's only a break in the past if we look at the past backwards. What really undergirded things and continued to undergird daily life in Britain was what J.C.D. Clark calls the confessional state. 
It's literally like a grid of thought that allows particular thoughts to happen. It's really close to Foucault's idea of the episteme that he lays out in the order of things. The strong idea of the episteme, too, for all my Foucault fans, that has a lot of trouble changing, and when changes only changes through dramatic break. Although I think, I'm not sure, that J.C.D. Clark would be horrified that I'm comparing him to Foucault, as he should be. Here, in the confessional state, there's a unity of interest, a broad unity of interest between the king, the parliament, and other elites, and the church. It is an Anglican monarchy that has a parliament. And this is not merely a story of uh, things up in the very highest political echelons, but also things on the ground. Actual local politics happened through a church-state combo. Uh, shored up by local political power. Think for this perhaps of an election, a local election in the 18th century. There you would get local landed power uh, actually interacting with the people and having the order being kept by justice of the peace, by uh, curates, and all of that. And these curates and justice of the peace, the actual people who do the day-to-day -day work of the administration, are more often than not appointed by the landed aristocracy. All of these people, in turn, get their authority from their participation in the great hierarchy uh, that runs down from king down to commoner. Now, this does change. The Anshan regime for Clark does end, and it ends incredibly quickly and spectacularly, not in 1688, but in 1832. 1832 is the Great Reform Act, and Clark sees from uh, 1828 to 1832 a kind of, you know, massive suicide of the ruling class. It starts off with the repeal of the Test and Corporation Acts, which were uh, bills that m said that dissenters, people who were not Anglicans, couldn't participate in government. With the repeal of the Test and Corporation Acts, it ends officially the identity between Anglicanism and actual government of Britain. Then, a year later in 1829, you have something that is even more drastic, a Catholic Emancipation Bill that miraculously passes through Parliament after a ton of parliamentary maneuvers we're not going to talk about. This Catholic Emancipation Bill allows Catholics a seat at the political table. And if this does not sound drastic to you, well, it was drastic for people at the time. Catholic emancipation was the third rail of British politics. It led to ministry after ministry falling. Uh, George III famously would not sign a Catholic emancipation bill no matter what. Uh, he thought that it would be um, going against his coronation oath to allow Catholics a seat at the political table. But in 1829, it happens. Then, as a result of this political suicide, the defenders of the political order, the Tories, fall out of power, and 1832 happens, the Great Reform Act, which is when um, there's a bill passed that expands the electorate, allowing new people to actually vote. Clark sums up the difference between the two revolutions like this. 1688 was the church against the state because it was Protestantism versus the king. People could either uh, follow the king and start to make Britain a little bit more Catholic, or they could stand by the Anglican Church and kick out the king. Protestantism won. 1832, however, was a repeat of this, Church Against the State Part Two. 
people could back up the church and uh, keep the confessional state where being a member of the state meant being a member of the church. Or they could do the necessary political changes that would mean that there would not be a civil war. And people chose the political changes. State one in church versus state part two. And after 1832, there is a rush of reforms. Um, the people who are pushing for 1832, the people who are pushing for reform are themselves pushing it because they see it as the first step in a wider uh, menu of reforms. Um, people wanted uh, civil marriages, which meant marriages that are registered not by the church, but by the state. They wanted currency reform, repeals of the corn laws, reforms of factory, abolition of slavery. The parliamentary reform movement then was seen at the time as opening the doors to reform society itself, and it did indeed start. It might have taken another, say, 50 years before you get the state being really activist in a large range of areas like we would see state activism today, but 1832 can be seen as a start. So what's my stake in this? You might think from the dates that I'm using that I'm a 1688er, that I really think that the Glorious Revolution changed everything. And I don't. I, I just use 1688 as a signpost. I frankly use it because uh, the other date that appeals to me doing this in like 1600 or 1650, uh, in which case I could tell the really long story of economic development that I want to tell, that date would require me to talk about a lot more stuff, and I don't want to do that much reading, and I don't especially want to do reading about the Civil Wars, which I find uh, boring and complicated. And so I chose 1688 as a beginning date that would let me tell a lot of the story I want to tell without dealing with as much, you know, as many years. But that's not a good answer. That's not the sort of answer that I can uh, uh, justify in an orals exam. Um, and so I want to just reframe what we're talking about, because when we're talking about the end of an ancien regime, what really matters is what we mean by ancien regime. And my perspective in all of this is that I think that we should pay more attention to networks of organizations and networks of things. And from that perspective, the story of the decline of the Yanshan regime is like the story of the Industrial Revolution, a slow one, where you get a shift from traditional to modern social life. For me, that shift is based uh, primarily around how people identify themselves. In traditional social life, people are uh, identified by where they live, uh, which is, in Georg Simmel's term, concentric, uh, uh, around other kinds of social designators. So you might be a farmer who lives on a particular farm, who's in a particular family, who's lived in a particular church, and membership in the lowest uh, level of those designations presupposes membership in all of them. Think of this in J.C.D. Clark's uh, idea of what it means to be a member of the British nation at this point in time. To be a member of Britain is to be a member naturally of the Anglican Church, and people who are not members of the Anglican Church for whatever reason are naturally excluded from the political body. However, in modernity, in modern social life, people are identified by overlapping and voluntaristic participation in networks of organizations. 
I am not merely a recorder of a podcast, which puts me in touch with this broad network of people I don't even know. I'm also a member of a particular university, and that you can imagine me in another network, a, a, a participant in a bunch of uh, social groups. You can see that network. Who lives in a particular apartment building? You can see that network. You can imagine my Facebook uh, page. Uh, uh, all these links to hundreds of people all across the world that are all in turn linked to a bunch of other people. If you looked at my social graph, I would be an individual uniquely and voluntarily participating in a wide variety of things. This is the story that I'm telling, the rise of this thing. And this begins in the long 18th century. And I want to emphasize long. Phil Withington has identified a lot of the rise of voluntary social organizations that I care about in the early 17th century in societies and companies that bloomed in urban social life, people getting together for drinking clubs, for societies that serve to serve the public good, for companies, for um, even groups of friends were called societies. And these slowly over time got more numerous, more complicated, more powerful, more capacious. The usual story looks at a number of developments that I think of as force multipliers for this organizational tide already. Coffee houses, which centralize people uh, around a very sociable beverage. The spread of print, which allows people's social networks to expand even more. Improvements in transportation and communication. All of these are force multipliers that help an already uh, 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 burgeoning tendency towards organization. So that's the sort of story that I want to be telling, but it is not as punchy as the 1832 story or the 1688 story. There's no revolution. So I want to offer a moment that I think we could identify as the end of the Ancien Regime. Symbolically, of course, it's incomplete and always incomplete. There's still strains of traditional social life even today, although the important thing to note there is that, uh, uh, to this extent, that traditional social life is voluntary. People opt into it rather than being forced into it. But anyway, so I think that perhaps we can see the end of the Yanshin regime in the Seven Years' War, which has been called by some people the First World War, where Britain and France and one of their many international conflicts have a conflict uh, all around the globe, from North America to the continent of Europe to India. And it ends with Britain having spent a ton of money and France having spent a ton of money, but with the world map changed. This is the moment when Britain gets not just a toehold in India, but its whole hand around it. This is the moment when France starts to recede from continental North America and when British North America becomes a really big possibility, an entire continent where people are mostly speaking English. So how does this happen? This happens through a story of organizations. The Navy in Britain is a huge reason why Britain is able to win. And the Navy only is able to win because of developments in administrative technology and organizations that we've touched on before. It is an administrative machine that can extend its power through great distances only because it is able to provision itself through 
of a, a stream of money that has a at its heart a professionalized bureaucracy. It's only able to provision itself because it has a professional provisioning uh, office called the Victualing Office, which feeds uh, and clothes the thousands and thousands of people aboard ships through incredibly complicated administrative machinery. And so I want to make the hard claim that the Seven Years' War is a victory of British organization and administration, not a victory of genius, not a victory of, of courage, not a victory of uh, tactics, but a victory of pen and paper and account book. And we can see how powerful these new organizations are in looking what happens after the Seven Years' War. Because after the Seven Years' War, you have a number of years of political conflicts that are centered around these new kinds of organizations. Wilkes cite uh, loyalist uh, patriotism, for instance, uh, is at once a response to the Seven Years' War. Wilkes's seditious libel that gets him thrown into prison is a disputation on the end of the uh, Seven Years' War. He's saying that people gave up too much. And the fact is that Wilkes is dangerous, not just because he's one person who's claiming these things, but because there are countless Wilkesite organizations that use the same kinds of technology of meeting and sociability as a force multiplier for this idea. Wilkes becomes a symbol of these organizations. When we think of the Wilkesite movement, we're often baffled because Wilkes seems such a bad uh, uh, representative of political change. He's obviously corrupt. He's uh, disgusting. He doesn't care about the things that he stands for. But that's because he's being used by these organizations as a political cipher. It's the organizations that are doing that work. Fast forward 10 years to 1776 in America, and here the story continues of organizations and associations and newspapers in the political sphere helping people formulate a new political identity. After the Seven Years' War, I want to say, increasingly, what happens in history happens as a result of organizations. Problems increasingly are seen not as local problems to do with individuals, but problems that are themselves the result of organizations, of classes, of wider abstract bodies influencing people. Uh, you can see this in what people get pissed off about. People increasingly have fewer food riots, and instead, people have more riots about political representation. People are getting upset less and less about what's happening on the ground right in front of them, and getting upset more and more about what's happening to the invisible skein of organizations in which they see themselves enmeshed in. Disagreements are more about the virtual representation of these organizations, who belongs in the party, who belongs uh, in the political nation, who's able to speak. An empire, which happens increasingly after the Seven Years' War, spreads it. From this perspective, 1832 is merely the continuation of the political power of organizations, because from this perspective, we would not focus on the parliamentary wrangling uh, that Clark focuses on. Instead, we would focus on the bottom-up campaigning by networks of clubs and associations and newspapers to try to pressure the parliament into uh, making political change. The story, then, would be a bottom-up story 
of organizations changing things. And then, after the 1832 Reform Act, we would take note of how the political parties then turn to organizations to advance their cause. One of the technical things that the 1832 Reform Act does is it forces uh, parties to mount uh, uh, electoral registry pushes. People have to get registered to vote before the election, and this requires organizational machinery. So, after the Reform Act passes, the Tories and the Whigs start to institutionalize themselves in associations. First, in elite associations where uh, they get together to talk about things and to set policy, but also in networks of on-the-ground associations to make the work of the party happen, not just in Whitehall, not just in London, but in the streets. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of a Historian. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Tweet at me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. If you tweet me a question, I might answer it on the show. Uh, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening.